Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Shall we open our meeting in prayer? Our Father and our God, we thank you that we are able to meet together in this way. And we thank you that we have a Savior that we've remembered. We thank you for the time that we've had around him this morning. And we ask that you would bless our time together, uh, our family Bible uh, instruction time. Pray that you bless our, our brother Gary and help each one of us that we might listen to your word. We pray that there may not be any technical difficulties. We ask these things in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you. Yeah, good to be with you. Nice to remember the Lord uh, together. On Wednesday night, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we're thinking of uh, the, the theme or the topic, God is good, or uh, response to maybe uh, a critic, uh, a skeptic's comment, is God good? Or as an apologetic, uh, how would we prove God is good? And what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that God was working for their good, but in the midst of it, they wouldn't understand that. Uh, there's no way they would know that um, making them humble, testing them and teaching them was for their ultimate uh, good. They're in the midst of it. They couldn't see down the road. They were still in the wilderness. And Moses said, well, that's what uh, God is, is doing uh, to you and in you and through you. And so they had to accept his word that what he was doing was for their good. Now, of course, the lessons only lasted at the most for two generations, but God was uh, good to them, uh, in spite of the fact that they perhaps didn't understand it. So they were too close. They lacked the perspective uh, to see the future. God knew what was going to come, and he did this for their good. This morning, we want to look at Psalm 73. And here the issue is uh, what the psalmist looks at and what he considers to be good is uh, a wrong perspective. And so uh, he adjusts his perspective through this psalm, and perhaps that's a message for us. Next, uh, I'm with you again, not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, and we'll look at another psalm. And there the thought is that when we look back from an eternal perspective, we'll see regardless of what we went through, that God indeed was good. And so Psalm 73 is a psalm where the psalmist uh, looks at life, looks at the world, and really wonders. Uh, he has doubts because the wicked seem to be doing so well, and the righteous are suffering. And that's, of course, an age-old problem, as we mentioned. Uh, there's three psalms that are somewhat similar in character, Psalm 37, Psalm 49, and Psalm 73. Uh, psalm 37, written by the king, uh, Psalm 49, by the sons of Korah, 
Levites. And here Asaph uh, in Psalm 73 is a worship leader. So kings and priests had this, this problem. Uh, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, if God is good, why is this the case? But not only uh, kings and priests, but prophets as well. Uh, Habakkuk and Jeremiah wrestled with the same issues. How can a good God do these things? But it was true, too, of even pagan philosophers. Socrates uh, said that uh, what would be vexatious to good men was the prosperity of the wicked. Uh, a poet, uh, uh, Dryden, a British poet, said, this virtue and distress and vice and triumph makes atheists of mankind. And so priests and philosophers, pagans, poets, kings, all have had that problem. And perhaps even in our life and experience, we wonder sometimes, well, why do some have it so good and others uh, struggle uh, with this? Uh, why do the wicked do so well at times and why do the righteous uh, suffer? So here in the 73rd Psalm, there's a number of, we might say, directions that the psalmist looks. He looks in at what he's thinking and he reveals the thoughts of his heart. And then he looks out at what he sees uh, around him. And then he, he looks up and uh, finds out God's perspective is somewhat different. And then he looks forward to see what really matters and counts in, in life. And so we'll think of this psalm in this way that uh, there are these, these looks. The first look is a backward look in verse 1, where he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. And what he's stating there is a theology. He's saying, here's what I've taught, here's what I've heard, here's what I've learned uh, down through the years. Uh, I've preached messages on this, we might say. And he says, uh, here's a statement of faith, a doctrinal uh, truism. And that's found in other places in Scripture, too, the same idea. Uh, the 135th Psalm, verse 3, says, Oh, praise the Lord, for he is good. And Psalm 31, there's a verse that says, How great is your goodness. Psalm 52, the goodness of God continues. And, and so on. And so we find that uh, this thought uh, theologically is, is through uh, Scripture. I mentioned on Wednesday night when uh, the Lord spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 34 and revealed his character. Remember in chapter 33, 18, Moses said, show me your glory. And instead of something visual so much, God gave him a verbal uh, response. And the verbal response contained this thought that God is abundant in goodness. He is a, a good uh, God. Uh, Romans chapter 2 talks about the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and long-suffering, the fact that the goodness of God leads to repentance. And so uh, here's his, his theology, but he's shaken to the core as he looks around, and he reveals his inward thoughts. And we can read some of these verses. We won't read them all in order, but verse 2 and verse 3. That is for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then if you go down to verse, verse 12, 
Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. If I'd said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. So here, uh, the psalmist has been very honest. He says, uh, you know, I, I preach this, I believe verse 1 is true, but he says, I almost slipped. And then later he says, I wonder, if we put it in our terms, I wonder if this is really worth it. I've washed my hands in vain. In other words, the life I'm living, is it a life that really matters or counts? When I, when I look around at what is going on, uh, in the world and how the, well the wicked are doing. And so it's a very honest um, expression. He does say that he can't share this with anybody because it would, it would really cause doubts to rise in their hearts. And so he said, I can't tell this. It would be too painful. Uh, it's painful for me, but I can't uh, throw or overthrow the faith of the, of the others. Uh, by expressing this. So he says, this is what I'm wrestling with. But what happens here, and perhaps we've all experienced this at some time, is emotions or feelings are controlling his response. As he looks around, he's uh, becoming emotionally involved. And he thinks that uh, what he sees is, is true because this is what he's feeling. And so uh, you can see his emotions being expressed in here. I was envious, he said. And then in verse uh, 16, it was too painful for me. And so he's wearing his emotions on the sleeve. And uh, he can't, he doesn't want to hide them. He wants to be real in how he's, he's feeling. But of course, uh, there always is a danger when we respond emotionally. Uh, God has given us emotions, but uh, emotions can displace faith. And so now he's emotionally involved. You have the same thing in the book of Habakkuk. In chapter 1, Habakkuk's on the ground looking around, and he's emotionally involved. And God tells him the Babylonians are coming, and this is their character. This is what they're like. Um, Habakkuk just almost can't handle it. And so he changes his perspective. Uh, physically, he says, I'll uh, go up in a tower and I'll sit there or stand there and see what God has to say about this. But in chapter one, he's controlled by his emotions. By the time you get to chapter three, he's controlled by faith and his emotions fall in line with that. And so here, as the psalmist wrestles with these things, uh, he's controlled by his emotions and as a result he's lonely because he can't share these things with anyone else well what did he see let's look at verse 4 down to verse 11 psalm 73 verse 4 to verse 11 this is what he saw when he looked at uh, the wicked the prosperity of the wicked he says for there are no pangs in their death but their strength is firm they're not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like other men Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than the heart could wish. They scoff 
and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily and set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, the waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they say, how does God know? And in it is their knowledge in the most high. Now let me just say the last two verses I read, verse 10 and 11, apparently are very difficult to interpret, uh, both linguistically and theologically. But uh, perhaps in the flow of the context, it's best to look at those verses as still talking about uh, the wicked who are uh, wealthy uh, in their lifestyle. And you see some of the things he has to say about them. Uh, their wealth uh, secures things for them. In verse 4 and 5, they don't suffer like other people because their, their wealth can take care of them in some ways. And we, of course, see that in our culture, our society. Uh, wealthy people can get things done that others may have to, uh, to wait for. I think it's uh, Paul Rand, the senator, was going to come up to Toronto for hernia surgery because uh, he could afford it and uh, there's no waiting time. And so I'm not saying he's wicked, but the, the wealthy can do things that the wicked or the, the uh, poor cannot do. And so uh, that's what the psalmist sees. He says their, their wealth just shields them from certain uh, things. Uh, verse verse uh, 7, they have more than the heart could wish. And we see that uh, certainly in many places that uh, you, th you think of the contracts that some uh, athletes have. You think of uh, the income that actors and musicians uh, have. You think of the uh, income of some CEOs. And, and uh, then you think in terms of uh, how much some of the uh, people in the drug trade and the mafia have. Uh, it's certainly true that they would have uh, more than one could uh, could wish, than the heart could wish. But he says then, they, verse 8 and 9, that they, they're malicious, uh, they speak evil and uh, take advantage of other, other people. Um, and so when the psalmist looks at these people, he really wonders, you know, they're wicked and they're wealthy. Uh, life seems so easy for them. They don't suffer uh, like the righteous do. Uh, how is this? How is this fair? And of course, we're going through a time in our history, our experience, where um, we might say the same thing. We are hearing of Christians who get sick and die. We hear of missionaries who uh, get sick and die. And we wonder, well, why should it be? And yet uh, some of the wicked can afford to go to places where they are safely isolated or they can have treatments that others cannot afford. And so the psalmist wrestles with these, these things. But of course, not everything is as it appears. And sometimes uh, the wicked uh, really don't have it all together. Uh, you think of Luke 16, you think of the rich man and Lazarus. That rich man, it says he dined sumptuously. He had all that he could want, all the heart could desire. And yet when he died and he saw Lazarus in paradise in Abraham's bosom, uh, he asked for a cup of water. And the response was, you had good things in your life. Well, they looked good at the time, but ultimately 
were not uh, so good. And so sometimes what people seem to have uh, isn't all that wonderful. Many of you remember the name Howard Hughes. He was a very wealthy man, and he died of malnutrition. Uh, he was afraid to eat any food in case it had been poisoned. So his hair was long, his nails were long, he was unkempt. Uh, all that wealth, and yet died really of fear and of, of hunger. Um, we just read this week of the pitcher, Roy Halliday, who died in that plane crash off the coast of Florida. His body was full of, of drugs, and uh, he was doing stunts that were dangerous. And so people might look at him and say, look at that, he can afford to fly his uh, a plane, he can do whatever he wants. But life wasn't uh, perfect, for sure, and the outcome was very deadly. So, uh, as the psalmist looks at these things and wonders, well, uh, what's going on? He decides to just change his perspective. And in verse 17, he looks up and he looks to see what God has to say about this. So imagine this is what Habakkuk did as well. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1, he withdraws and he goes and stands on his tower and says, what's God going to see? I'm just going to wait here until I have God's perspective on this. And so in verse 17, after he's expressed how painful it is, he says this, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and I understood their end. Surely you've set them in slippery places. You've cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they're brought to desolation in a moment. They're utter, utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one wakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you will despise their image. And so uh, here, uh, it's a different picture. It looks like life is so good. But now he comes into the very presence of God and says, uh, what's your perspective? And he's going to go from feelings to faith as he uh, looks at a divine perspective, a different view. And so, though it looked like they had it so good, uh, perhaps in the long run it wasn't so good. That there was, there was something wrong at the end of the journey. And so this changes his perspective as he goes into the very presence of God. So that's what the Lord would do for us, of course, um, regardless of what we're going through and what the future might hold. Uh, as we go into the Lord's presence, as we spend time in his word, uh, fellowship with his people, uh, find instruction from him, he will calm our hearts and he will minister his peace uh, to us. And so here, uh, from a divine perspective, he finds out that just like that rich man in Luke 16, there their end isn't envious. Uh, there's very little to envy. It's been said that for the unrighteous, this world is as good as it gets. Whereas we'll find out later on, for the righteous, this world is as bad as it gets. And so as God opens up his understanding, gives a divine perspective, he realizes these things. In verse 18, they're going down to destruction. In uh, verse uh, 20, uh, they will be despised. And so uh, they're going to desolation in verse 19 and despised in verse 20. 
And so regardless of what they had in life, uh, death's not going to be such a wonderful thing for them. They're on a slippery slope headed for a lost eternity. Back in, early in the psalm, the psalmist said, I envy uh, the wicked, but they're not to be envied, they're to be pitied because they're headed to a lost eternity. Sometimes when uh, people die without Christ and they've lived a wicked life, uh, I wonder, you know, I had to talk earlier about imagination and I, I wonder what it would be like that first moment in eternity when they recognize that they've been wrong, that uh, their life has been lived for pleasure, not for the Lord. They've rejected the gospel and they end up in a lost eternity. That, that first few moments in, in a place of punishment must be terrible. And I think what makes it even worse is the, there will be a consciousness of what they've done and how they've rejected the offer of God's salvation. So in verse 21 and 22, he responds this way. Thus was my heart grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He says, I can't believe that I had those thoughts. I can't believe that I was thinking that way. It's very similar to what Job expressed. Uh, twice over, Job responds to God after God interrogates him at the end of the book of Job in chapter 40. Job says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth once I've spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. And then in chapter 42, he says, Therefore, I pour myself and repent in dust and ashes. Uh, he had lots to say you know, before he knew something of the character of God. But once he's uh, been that's been revealed to him. He has very little to say. He says, no, I've said enough already. I'm humbling myself in your presence. And so that's where the psalmist is. He, he's going to humble himself in the presence of God. Now that his perspective has changed, uh, he's gone from envying them to pitying them and to recognizing that it's not his feelings, but it's faith in the word of God and in the plan of God uh, that matters and counts. And so this is what he, he looks at. Uh, we might say this is the, the forward look, the onward look. And let's read from verse 23 to the end of the psalm. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom am I in heaven but you, and there's none on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You've destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it's good for me to draw near to God. I've put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. And so here, the psalmist recognizes that, boy, I have it good. Uh, I'd envied the wicked and thought they have life so easy, but now they understand where they're going. I recognize that maybe my view of what is good is wrong. Uh, my perspective is skewed. I don't really appreciate or understand what good is. And so here in verses uh, 23 24, he, he lists four things that are true for us. But 35 years ago, I was traveling 
to speak at a prayer meeting. It was an hour away, and on the way, I could listen to Christian radio stations out of, uh, I think, out of Tennessee, perhaps. And uh, Warren Wearsby was speaking, and he was speaking on these verses, and he gave an outline that stuck with me all these years. Perhaps this will stick with you as well. Wonderful uh, outline and thoughts from these verses of what we have in Christ that the world knows nothing about. And there's four statements here that we can take to heart, and especially in a time like this. We don't know what the future holds, and uh, we don't know what the outcome will be, and perhaps it'll be different for uh, some of us than others. But uh, these are our certainties that we have. And so he says, nevertheless, in spite of what I thought and where I've been at, nevertheless, he says, I'm continually with you. And a wonderful thought. Uh, we have that promise, uh, the fact that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, said to the disciples, he would send the Holy Spirit to them, who would be with them forever. And so we have the guarantee of his presence. Hebrews 13 tells us, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. When we're saved, according to Ephesians 1.14, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee, the down payment uh, on that inheritance till the day of redemption. And so there's no possibility for a true believer of losing their salvation. It's guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. The Lord Jesus talked about the fact that he would come to us. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And he said, my father will come to you. And so in the person of the Holy Spirit, we have fellowship and communion with a triune God. And so we have this wonderful guarantee. That's our first point. We have a guarantee that he will never, ever leave us or forsake us. We also have the grasp of his hand. He said, you will hold me by my right hand. And that's a wonderful thing to know that we have not only his presence, but also the nearness of his presence, the grasp of his right hand, the fact that he is holding on to us. We are in his hand and in the Father's hand. But this uh, suggests uh, perhaps that he is leading us and guiding us. The psalmist said he leadeth me beside still waters uh, into green pastures. Uh, the 23rd Psalm uh, depicts that we have a person to love and a place to live. We have the grasp of his hand. We can enjoy fellowship with him. So we have the guarantee of his presence. We have the grasp of his hand. And then in verse 24, we have the guidance of his counsel. He will guide and direct us. How does he do that? He does it through his word. Uh, times past, he did it through visions and through other means. But now he guides us through his word. Uh, we can be led by the Spirit. We can walk in the Spirit. We can live a life that's different because uh, he gives us the guidance we need on what life is all about and where we're to go. And so those are wonderful sureties, the guarantee of his presence, the grasp of his hand, the guidance of his counsel. But there's something even greater ahead, isn't there? There's glory to follow. And so he says, afterward, you will receive me to glory. 
So this is the promise of the Lord Jesus in the upper room in John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, that, and I will come again, receive you in myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The wonderful promise. There's a great uh, verse in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 17. It says, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is afar off. That phrase, the king and his beauty, is found in a number of our hymns, but that's a wonderful thought, that we will see the king in all his beauty. We saw in the book of Zechariah, uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to earth, he'll be uh, clothed in majesty. He will bear the glory. And so we will be there. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. In his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. No matter or no wonder we can sing what a day that will be. And so glory to follow. So regardless of what happens, there's a simple little outline that you can cling to, easy to remember. I said, I heard it 35 years ago and it stuck with me, the guarantee of his presence, the grasp of his hand, the guidance of his counsel, and glory uh, to follow. Wonderful blessings that the Lord gives us. The wicked, the unrighteous, know nothing of this. They don't know that the, the peace and the grace, the comfort that his presence brings. They have no hope for eternity such as we have. And so regardless of what we go through here, we can say, yes, God is good. He is good to me. He goes on to talk about uh, the wonder of that relationship. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's none on earth I desire. Uh, beside you. Instead of looking at the wicked, he looks at what he has uh, in his relationship with God, what he enjoys, what God has given uh, to him, and how God strengthens and encourages him. He's reminded in verse 27 that uh, the wicked are headed for destruction, but in verse 28 he says, it's good for me to draw near to God. I've put my trust in the Lord God. I may declare all your works. And said, we have a choice, uh, even in the Christian life, living for this world or living for that world. He says, uh, I've put my trust in the Lord God, but declare your works. It really takes him back to verse one. Uh, the Lord is good to Israel. And now he can tell everybody. He can have that testimony. He can be a witness to the goodness of God. Why? Because his perspective has, has changed. And uh, let me give you a, a couple of examples from from history there's a man by the name of cecil rhodes uh, may, may, name may not mean much to some of you but cecil rhodes was the founder of the de beers mining company very very wealthy man in south africa uh, two countries in africa were named after him northern rhodesia and southern rhodesia uh, he established a, a scholarship program the rhodes uh, rhodes scholarship uh, that's still available today where certain individuals can do postgraduate degrees at uh, Cambridge or Oxford University in, in England. Uh, very, very wealthy man. But these words are attributed to him at the end of life. He said, I've gained much in Africa of, of lands of gold and diamonds. But he said, I've not prepared for the future, therefore I have nothing. 
So that's a very honest uh, review or look at his life. He said, I've gained lots here. And he wasn't a necessarily a good man. He was very ruthless in his business dealings. But at the end of life, he recognized, I've gained nothing uh, for the future. Again, it reminds us of the rich man in Luke 16. No thought for eternity. Whereas Lazarus ended up uh, in paradise, in Abraham's bosom, and comforted there, and the rich man in the place of torment. The story is told, and I've probably told it to you before, of William Borden, out of a rich family in Chicago, who at uh, the age of 17 or 18, on graduation from high school, was given a trip around the world. And on that trip, he saw many wonderful things, but what moved his heart, what stirred him, was the plight of the the lost, especially in the Muslim world. And so he determined to uh, give his life to the service of the Lord, leaving behind a, a fortune uh, that his family had uh, in Chicago. He went to Princeton University and then later to, to Yale. Uh, he was an amazing young man. Uh, when he was at Princeton, it said that uh, in 19, I think 1906, he started a prayer meeting him and one other fellow in a senior year, uh, out of the 1,300 students at Princeton, uh, 1,000 met for prayer. But he went to, to Cairo in Egypt to learn Arabic. And uh, there he contracted uh, meningitis and he, he died at 25 years old. Now, this story is attributed to him. There's no substantiation, but I've read it many times. And even if it's not, uh, verifiable, it certainly uh, applies to his life. It said that when he got saved, he wrote in his Bible the words, no retreat. And then it said when he left for Egypt to learn Arabic, he wrote in his Bible, no reserves. And then it said when his mother got his Bible back after his death, it had these words, no regrets. And so there was somebody who made a conscious choice. Uh, Prince uh, Bernadette of, of Norway gave up his throne and his royal title uh, for the sake of Christ, became a missionary to the Laplanders. And uh, though in our hymn book, uh, I'd rather have Jesus than anything is attributed to uh, a lady. Uh, if you look on Google, it's attributed at times to, or in Norway, to him that as a prince he was willing to give it all up for the sake of Christ. And so the wealth of this world is not always the measuring stick or the standard for what is good. God is good, but our perspective is sometimes skewed. So going back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, they couldn't see what the good would be because they were too close to it. God was working in them and through them, but they couldn't see in the distance. And they didn't know what was coming. They didn't know why God was doing these things. But God knew. And so he was preparing them. Here in Psalm 73, uh, his, his perspective is skewed or wrong because he's looking at the wrong things. It's too, too narrow a view, too short a view. And so he needs to look to the future. He looks at God's perspective. And he sees that, yes, God is good. And boy, do I have it good because I have these wonderful things. I have the guarantee of his presence, the grasp of his hand, the guidance of his counsel, and glory to follow. We could say, 
God is good. How good is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend. So I trust that these things will encourage you as we go through what for many are difficult times. We can look uh, beyond the circumstances, above the circumstances, and say, yes, God is good. And as the psalmist said, it is good for me to draw near to God and keep my perspective uh, in line with his. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the honesty of the psalmist as he wrestled with these things and expressed them to us. How blessed we are because we can look back and say, well, others have gone through these things. They've experienced this. They've wrestled with these these things. And so, Father, uh, we thank you that we can look at the scripture and see how his perspective changed by spending time in your presence, by recognizing what he had uh, was greater wealth and riches than what the world had to offer. And so, Father, encourage our hearts, bless us as we think on these things, and as we recognize that truly God is good, and we have a relationship with that good God. So bless your people. Watch over us, we pray. We commit ourselves to you in the Savior's name. Amen.